The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Italian bond yields tumble after the ECB expands and extends its pandemic emergency purchase program to help offset a sharp contraction in the Eurozone economy. The 600 billion should bring us over time significantly closer to what I have called the pre-COVID inflation path, while allowing us to monitor how some key developments unfold in the coming months. Asian stock markets trade cautiously higher after U.S. averages snap a four-day winning streak. Attention turns to the jobs report as unemployment is expected to hit nearly 20%. The CEO of Nissan tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that the car maker must transform to thrive, saying the virus shock will speed up technological changes in the sector. We want to have the uh, become sustainable profit and we must uh, honestly address on the area of underperformance and pullback from the area that previous overexpansion that has been done in the Nissan. Book bashing Elon Musk lashes out at Jeff Bezos, calling for Amazon to be broken up after the online retail giant rejects the book, questioning the risks of coronavirus. And first out of the gates in the sporting world, horse racing becomes the first sport in Britain to restart since the lockdown with fixtures taking place behind closed doors. The euro has climbed to a three-month high, while Italian bond yields plunged on the back of the European Central Bank's decision to ramp up its pandemic stimulus plan. At the level we're looking at on euro dollar 113.47, a one-and-a-half-month high we're witnessing. The ECB has announced it will nearly double its bond purchasing program to 1.35 trillion euros and extend it until next summer. But ECB President Christine Lagarde stressed the Eurozone still faces a, quote, unprecedented contraction of 8.7% this year. Meanwhile, the central bank's staff don't expect headline inflation to rise, leaving it far below its 2% target. Speaking in the press conference, Lagarde said she hoped the boosted bond buying program would help steer economic activity and inflation back towards pre-pandemic levels. We collectively determined that the 600 billion should bring us over time significantly closer to what I have called the pre-COVID inflation path, while allowing us to monitor how some key developments unfold in the coming months that will indeed impact our policy. So we will understand a little better how the economy rebounds Uh, in the third quarter and then later on in the course of of the coming months uh, to to have a bit more clarity. Madame Lagarde was responding to questions from Annette, who joins us now. Annette, a bit of sizzle in the announcement yesterday. The market had rallied around a number of 375 to 500 billion euros in additional money poured into this PEP program. In fact, it was 600 billion extra, so better numbers than anticipated. Yeah, exactly. It was a lot more than anticipated. Also that they also announced that they are going to reinvest uh, anything which is maturing from 
maturing from the PEP program was, um, yeah, it was a surprise. I mean, the uh, consensus uh, estimate was that this is only coming towards the third quarter or so. So I guess the ECB wanted to, to be bold, wanted to have a bold signaling because signaling is all what matters on the markets, what we are currently seeing. If you look at the yield development in the bond market, that's clearly what the ECB wants to see reduction in yields in the periphery, given what these countries need to issue in terms of debt this year to combat the crisis they are facing. So that is actually really delivered. We can't argue against that. But if you look at the run rate, the ECB is currently buying assets, then even that 1.325 trillion program might run out of firepower by February or March. So I guess the uh, expectations are already again on that the ECB has to increase that huge envelope uh, again towards the second half of this year. And also, um, I guess the topic to enlarge the asset pool is not off the table. Of course, we might talk about equities, but something else is a lot closer to a potential expansion of the horizon, and that is corporate junk bonds, especially if we are now most likely going to see a lot more downgrades uh, from rating agency when it comes to corporates, and that essentially these corporates cannot tap easily capital markets, at least not for interest rates they want to have. So take a listen to what she said about, about junk bonds and the potential that the ECB might also buy them. Whether or not uh, we include uh, junk bonds, as you call them, in our uh, purchase policies. Um, we have defined uh, parameters for our purchases. Uh, we want to insulate the way we conduct policy from the effect of the pandemic and avoid self-fulfilling procyclicality. So we will continue to observe the situation and take appropriate and proportionate action. Aside from that, we, the Governing Council has not discussed uh, this matter. So essentially, with that expansion, that is what analysts are saying. The ECB could buy the whole horizon of debt issuance which comes, will come to the market in 2020. So essentially, preventing any yield escalation, so whatever we, yeah, kind of situation we might face in terms of economic contraction, Karen. Now, Netta, I thought it was extraordinary. The meeting had barely wrapped up. Christian Lagarde had barely finished the conference. And the reaction from the market was, well, let's look forward to September because clearly there's going to be even more stimulus. The PEP program could have another 500 billion euros added to it, taking it to 1.85 trillion. What do you make of those expectations? Yeah, that's exactly the problem. The moment you inject more stimulus, the market wants to have even more stimulus. So um, that is uh, yeah, what the hawks are arguing is it's extremely hard to uh, wean off the markets from uh, that extraordinary loose monetary policy stance. And most likely this year, we're going to see another round of expansion of that monetary stimulus. And there are the likes of uh, their investors who are saying this is also uh, the, the only reason 
reason why one should still continue to invest in equities and that equities will have a, a rally even from that elevated level. And even despite the fact that we don't know how the eco economic recovery will look like. But yes, most likely we're going to get that because look at the inflation expectations for that three-year horizon, even in three years, the ECB is not predicting inflation being close to its target. And now we are also facing the discussion that the ECB most likely will have a symmetrical inflation target, meaning that it's not only close to but below 2%, but also above 2%, meaning it is even harder to achieve that target. Um, so essentially, I guess, yes, we're going to get more stimulus this year. I, I, I presume I'm being economically illiterate, but we've had 10 years since the great financial crisis. We've had a long time to look at the effects of quantitative easing on all of those factors you just mentioned, Annette. And I'm not trying to make you an apologist for ECB policy, for QE, for what the BOJ has done. But I'm just asking some basic questions that I think our viewers are asking as well. Uh, and it's a series of questions. So let me ask those. Where is the evidence that quantitative easing stimulates inflation? Where is the evidence from the huge example from the Bank of Japan? I can't see the evidence. Where is the evidence that quantitative easing on this kind of scale stimulates demand? I can't see the evidence. Where is the evidence that the, the, this money used on quantitative easing is creating economic growth as well? Every bang for the buck of the increased debt load that's created is creating economic growth as well. And where is the evidence that this stimulates savers into more activity? As far as I can see, and you know more, far more about the sparkassum than I do, Annetta, every time a saver has income taken away from them because their bond yields are diminished, are trying to be forced uh, into spending because they are... Uh, confronted with negative rates. As far as I can see, the Sparkassen and others save more money rather than spending more money because they're losing income and hence they don't feel they have the same economic ability to go and spend going forward because they don't have that income. So where is the evidence that this works? That's what I want to know rather than throwing good money after bad. Uh, yes, that's exactly the line of the Bundesbank, which you are just now uh, displaying. And of course, um, there is, how can I phrase it? It's more about the counterfactual evidence. And I don't want to put myself uh, at the helm of, of the ECB. But, but what they are saying is, listen, um, it's more about counterfactual evidence, meaning if we had not done QE, where would we be? And clearly, we might actually be in a deflationary environment. The equity markets might have crashed. The southern countries, the periphery might have crashed out of the eurozone because bond yields might have spiked to whatever level that would have not been sustainable. And I guess now we're facing the same kind of situation. And that's also why Christine Lagarde yesterday, when I asked her whether they consider also uh, lowering the interest rate further, because that's clearly one possibility, according to their statement, um, they, she was not touching that topic. She was saying PEP, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program is the right instrument currently. And I guess the argument is uh, very much um, also running in that direction that they want to avoid fragmentation of the Eurozone. It's clear management of the yields structure across the Eurozone horizon. It's not 
necessarily only about inflation. It's also about surviving that crisis as a eurozone together. And that means they have to ensure that yields in the periphery are not going to spike and that nobody has the interest of betting against the survival again of the eurozone. Of course, inflation might be also... um, pushed higher. But you see that in that uh, forecast, Steve, and I'm completely with you, it does only have very small effects on inflation. And whether the side effects are warranted or not remains to be seen. With that, back to you. Annette, I'll pick it up. Uh, thank you very much for breaking all down for us around uh, the developments from the ECB. Let's push on to a big corporate story. Nissan CEO Makoto Uchida has told CBC in an exclusive interview that he is aiming for sustainable growth despite uncertainty around the pandemic. Juliana sat down with Uchida for a wide-ranging conversation and began by asking him to give his outlook for the company and its alliance with Renault. We want to have the uh, become sustainable profit and we must uh, honestly address an area of underperformance and pullback from the area that previous overexpansion that has been done in the Nissan. So this means uh, we need to optimize our production at an appropriate level. And also the operation while that is making the enhancing operation efficiency. And it also means that uh, we are going to prioritize ourselves which market that we further can be able to grow. And this is the building around the product and market and technologies where the Nissan can be truly successful. And taking our market focus as one of the example, we are prioritizing further sustainable growth, mainly on Japan, China and U.S., And part of your new strategy is around a restructuring of the alliance, the new strategy focusing now on this leader follower model, which effectively means Nissan will retreat from Europe and Renault from Asia. And of course, a a little bit more than that. How do you ensure that the alliance will develop and grow under this new model? The alliance should be a competitive tool for each company which means that the alliance uh, synergy or contribution should make to each company in terms of the revenue and in terms of the profit. And we look back what is still good uh, way of the working in the alliance and where that we can further dealing force or enhance. And we came to the conclusion together with Mr. Sanal, who is the chairman of the alliance, and my partner in Renault, Crotillo, and uh, uh, Mitsubishi Masuko-san and myself, well, we started to further enhance the name, the, the leader and follower, especially on the engineering uh, competence that each company has and also the model that each company can lead. And for Nissan, if I take one example, like in Europe, we want to maintain or sustain ourselves in Europe as a brand. Then how to sustain is what Nissan has to decide. So we will make our strategy first and we will think about our product lineup, how that could be satisfied first with our customer. Then where the area that I can get benefit from the support from the alliance, especially from the Renault uh, in Europe. So this is how we are working. What if it doesn't go exactly as you hope it does? As some analysts have called this a last roll of the dice when it comes to your collaboration with your alliance partners. So what if this collaboration doesn't go smoothly? Where does that leave Nissan? The alliance should be a competitiveness asset or tool for each company. And how we can 
uh, use those assets to, to make our each company to grow is a key point. So we have a very close communication. We call the Alliance Operational Board every month, where that we put everything on the table very transparently. Because uh, let me remind that the Alliance uh, mindset is that the, we should have transparency on everything in each other and how we can make sure to respect and how we can trust each other. If we cannot trust those, then how we can bring those to the, each business for the benefit for the, each company. So therefore, I'm very confident that uh, on the way that we further to grow, definitely there's a lot of the healthy discussion that we may foresee, but at the end, we'll be able to overcome and that could be benefit for the, each company, which we have been doing that for the past 20 years. So I really would like to define the alliance is not like the stagnant phase today, well, for more on Eugene's plans to transform Nissan after the carmaker posted its first annual loss in more than a decade, you can head to our website, that is cnbc.com. We'll bring you more from that interview throughout the program and be sure to catch the full conversation next Wednesday at 2300 CET. Ahead on the show, remembering George Floyd, a memorial service honouring the life of the man whose death has inspired calls for widespread change in America. A look at one of the most powerful moments during the service right after the break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The U.S. unemployment rate is expected to have climbed to almost 20% in the month of May, the highest level recorded by the Labor Bureau going right back to the 1940s. According to economists polled by Reuters, the non-farm payrolls are set to have declined by 8 million last month after the coronavirus pandemic wiped out 20.5 million jobs back in the month of April. The number of people filing for unemployment claims declined for the ninth week in a row, but the data remained well above the pre-crisis coronavirus levels. Now, the monthly jobs report will be due out at 14.30 CET today, so uh, many people will be watching the numbers when they cross today. Let's get into those US futures then as we anticipate some of the data, and you can see in the green is what we're watching, a little bit of positivity early on ahead of that Wall Street session. But it does follow what was a patchy old trading day yesterday. Uh, the markets uh, finishing up a little bit soggier than what we've witnessed in recent sessions all through this week, despite protests sweeping across the United States markets have been inclined to push forward and largely ignore the domestic news that's been playing out. Many investors still picking up on the stimulus theme, the hope that the reopening of economies worldwide will be positive for the economic direction. And uh, investors are very much pushing up stocks as a result. If you take a look at the likes of the Dow, a uh, very strong trade uh, over the course of the week. Uh, we're up 3.5% so far. And in session yesterday, just a patch of green on the index, only 11 points or so. In contrast to the red that flashed up for the S&P 500 by the close, down by about a third of a percent. But keep in mind how much territory we've reclaimed, about 40, 40% off some of those lows in March. And we're now just 8% off the all-time highs for the Nasdaq, also trading lower. 
And you can see quite a big reversal. We'll take you to the actual chart itself because in the session we saw an intraday high clocked up at 1.9741 versus uh, the 9,615 where we finished up. So we did reverse and you could see uh, the red staying on the boards as we closed up the trading day. But uh, this market, uh, this index in particular, just 2.2% off its all-time highs. So quite extraordinary rally that we've seen with the leadership from those big technology names. And let's peel off away from those US markets and take a look at the Asia day. The non-farm payrolls data will come out after these markets have shut. So this is the sort of day that's uh, transpiring. And a week that's been marred by a lot of trade tensions between the US and China. The uh, Australian market, China proxy trades, a fraction higher, up by about a tenth of a percent. So a lot of the enthusiasm cooling for some of these markets. The Hang Seng up two tenths, and you can see weaker trade for China. The exception has been around the Cosby this week, and you saw that yesterday as well, as the market was uh, piling into the measures, the latest government stimulus that's been announced. That's still a very supportive fact as we trade at 2,179 on the South Korean market. Let's get into the opening calls in Europe. The early calls are strong. The market yesterday reversing. So we did take a bit of a breather in that Thursday session. We're roughly down seven tenths of a percent on the broader benchmark index. Individual markets, the DAX down by just under half of a percent and the French market reversing by two tenths despite the surprise factor from the ECB yesterday, the, the pepped up pep program. But, but uh, the market looking to move ahead today and you can see very strong signals for that German stock market in particular. Triple digit point day anticipated 120 four points to the upside and it would continue the rally we've witnessed this week the market so far has been up more than seven percent over the trading week which has been a stunning performance for german stocks and more broadly across europe People across the U.S. mourned and celebrated the life of George Floyd during a memorial service in Minneapolis. This as thousands once again marched in his name in a number of cities echoing the demands for police reform. Speakers decried social injustice during the service, but its most powerful moment was a moment of silence. NBC's Dan Shenman explains. The demonstrations go on. Another night of outrage over the death of George Floyd. Amazing followed a day of remembering Floyd's life. It's crazy, man. All these people came to see my brother, and that's amazing to me that he touched so many people's hearts. Family, friends, and mourners gathered in Minneapolis to remember the man who has been lost. When he would wrap his arms around you, you just feel like, you know, you were, everything could just go away. While Floyd was honored, so were the feelings stirred up by his death. And when I looked this time and saw marches where, in some cases, young whites outnumbered the blacks marching, I know that it's a different time and a different season. A service fueled with emotion ended in silence. Eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence the time George Floyd was pinned under a police officer's knee. George Floyd should not be among the deceased. Ten days after George Floyd took his last breath, his family and his community are saying goodbye. Dan Sheneman, NBC News. 
British rapper Tiny Temper has spoken to CBC about the global demonstrations against police brutality, saying solidarity in person and on social media has been positive for the cause. In an interview with Tanya Breyer, the award-winning rapper spoke about his involvement with the mental health campaign Britain Get Talking, as well as the response to George Floyd's death around the world. I watched the whole nine minutes of the video and it is sad that this isn't the only video I've seen in a similar style and I'm sure this isn't the only video you've seen. Treatment of black people across the world as a whole is is disgusting, especially, you know, when you look at it in the sense of one, you know, being innocent and two, you know, relying on these people to protect us and serve us, you know, which is their job. They're essentially civil servants. And so when you kind of look at it like that, that the person who's meant to be protecting you and keeping you safe could be the person that's, you know, potentially going to end your life or like you said, now I have a child and your child's life or end your brother's life as a black person. That is a very harsh reality to face. We're seeing all the demonstrations around the world uh, in solidarity. We had Blackout Tuesday. Is that a step in the right direction? This time has been good and the solidarity has been good because it's given people a chance to kind of look inwardly at themselves and at their environment, you know. And this is definitely not me saying that every person is racist, every white person is racist, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's a mindset and it's, it's a systemic process that has happened long before you or I were even here. So yeah. it's there subconsciously. And until people look inwardly at their privilege and at their environments, you know, how diverse their environments are or how, you know, people of the BAME community, how how their opportunities are looking in your world, you know, and in your environment. For me, silence is almost participation, you know, by you kind of just standing there and being silent, you're part of the problem. And I and I feel like the solidarity this time around has definitely made people do that. President Trump's response has been criticised and people have said that he's actually inflamed the situation. What do you think about that? I've been disgruntled about, about the whole thing and I know most people have, you know, from the very beginning, but I was very disgruntled to see protesters being uh, hit with rubber bullets. I wasn't really happy about the fact that he was using gas on some of these innocent people, this innocent youth. Um, it, it, it doesn't really make sense to me. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't necessarily agree with the way he handles loads of different things. So I guess I'm not really surprised, to be honest with you. What do you want world leaders like a Trump to be saying now? I think we definitely need world leaders, regardless of race, you know, to be coming out and supporting the Black Lives Movement, you know, just to show people that you know, until Black Lives Matter, all lives will matter. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.